this is the exception to the rule is that even though you're doing this to Messi, he's still going to beat you. But if you do it to other players, it's already enough where they're not going to beat you and the defender has gained an advantage. So that is, in my strong opinion, why Messi does not go down and embellish and and feign and all that sort of jazz. Howdy, listeners. This is Gary at the 343 Podcast. So today we cover a lot of ground. Um, We discuss VAR. We discuss diving, simulation, um, why Neymar does it, why Messi doesn't do it, hard versus soft, physical versus non-physical, Uh, of the American game versus overseas. And all of this kind of ties into the discussion of the term called the dark arts. Dark arts are something that aren't really talked much about. I mean, once in a while, you might hear a comment or two here on on a broadcast, Um, but it's not really written much about. It's not discussed. And it's a super important component of the game. VAR has indeed kind of I wouldn't say eliminated at all the dark arts. It's just made the defending more crafty and the dark, and the other non-defending sort of dark arts uh, more crafty as well or more hidden. So it's important to discuss that. And then, I mean, we touch on a bunch of things, uh, whether the cream rises to the top or not. There's even a dabble of promotion and relegation in the podcast and uh, a little sprinkle of you know, whether the U.S. men's national team players, this roster, uh, the one that just won the Nations League, um, has what it takes from a pressure perspective. You know, can the players, can these players handle the pressure? Yes or no. And it's not really a trivial answer. Uh, so if you find yourself saying immediately yes or immediately no, maybe you want to stick around and tune in. A couple products that you need to check out. One is at 343coaching.com. Go there, all you coaches out there, if you want to learn and implement a proven, successful coaching methodology with your teams. I'll just leave it there. Go dive deep, do the homework, see if this is actually a credible resource. Obviously, I'm going to tell you, absolutely, it is unprecedented work, absolutely remarkable work, absolutely it works. You know, you can check out our testimonial page from the hundreds of coaches that have gone through the program and are still in the program years and years and years after starting out, because this is a process, ladies and gentlemen. There are no magic bullets, just like there are no magic bullets to becoming a scientist, just like there are no magic bullets to becoming a doctor, a lawyer, or any profession whatsoever. It is a process of learning. It is a process of implementation. It is a process of acquiring experience, but you need to do all those things with a correct a good methodology that is actually proven to work 343coaching.com all righty here we go um no so i've been watching a lot of soccer recently the international level and something that i'm noticing or maybe i've noticed for a long time is the more professional players and what i mean by that is players who play at top clubs or or getting you know, more quality experience, they're getting fouled a lot more. And so you tend to see these guys, I wouldn't say diving, but making the most out of out of a 50-50 or a challenge, right? Um, you look at like top players like Neymar who gets abused in a game constantly. Um, and so I, I want to see where you kind of stand on the spectrum. Um you know, it's case by case, of course, I'm sure, you know, if you're in the box and you get hit, it's one thing. But in general, you know, is, is exaggerating a foul wrong at the highest level? Or is it something that's going to, you know, keep you a little healthier? Because I, I think it's important to get out of the game healthy for your career, right? Um, otherwise, you're toast. Yeah. So, something that's pretty fresh in everybody's minds is the fairly recent development using VAR. Okay, the video assistant referee. I don't know when it came out, maybe four or five years ago or or Mm -hmm. so. And it's interesting. There was a debate around VAR, whether it should be implemented. And, you know, first and foremost, for the most important things, such as did the ball cross the goal line, right? That's the one. 
And then a, a second big one is the offside. Is the player offside, not offside, et cetera. And then thirdly, there there's reviews of fouls for penalties or, or rather whether for yellow cards or red cards or things of that nature. But what's really – and I'm going to circle back around to the diving question in a second. It's all related. What's really yeah, interesting sure. is that even with all that technology – and looking at the replays and zooming in and up close and doing the mathematical line for the offside and all all that sort of stuff, there is still debate as to whether it was a PK or not a PK, as to whether it was offside or not offside, all of these things. And so if we now discuss a little bit about fouls and what is a foul and what is not a foul, that's even more gray area, more ambiguous than whether it's offside or not, whether it's a goal or not, um, mm-hmm. whether it's a yellow card or not, it's even more ambiguous. So you have one referee to cover a 100 meter by whatever width field it is. Sure, yeah. you have assistance, but in general, the referees are 20 meters away from the play, maybe 10 meters mm-hmm. away, 30 meters uh, away from the play, perhaps in some instances. and. You can't tell, right, if if something is a foul or isn't a foul necessarily. I mean, they, they develop a lot of pattern recognition through years and years and years of experience. But at the same time, you mentioned Neymar. Okay, if you're Neymar and you're galloping or you do some sweet move body fake and you gain that, that one meter advantage on your defender to, to mm-hmm. blow by him, if they even touch you at all, you know, that impedes your progress um, and and pretty much ruins the play. You know, the, the, the advantage is stripped away. Yeah. Um, even something that's minor ticky-tack foul or whatever, you are ruining Neymar's pr- advantage and, and what he's already accomplished against you. He's beat you. Um, yeah. Or he's about to beat you. So if you're Neymar, yeah, you should exaggerate. Yes, you should go down. And put the onus on the referee to make the call. Um, if you stay up, and this is the argument a lot of time, oh, just stay up and play through it. If you stay up, the chances are, the probabilities are that the referee is not going to call a foul. Mm-hmm. And then the re- the end result is that the defender gained an advantage over the offensive player because he slowed the offensive player down, in my opinion, again, illegally. Right, sure, using sure. using what uh, a lot of people, myself included, coined the term "dark arts," the dark arts of defending. Right, yeah, yeah. A little nudge here, a little shirt pull there, a little uh, knee in in the thigh, uh, <laughs> all, all these sorts of things. Right. So, if you're the offensive player, for fuck's sake, absolutely go down and start conditioning the ref to protect the offensive player. On, on the matter of embellishing and maybe rolling around the ground, you know, and screaming, I think that's also important. Go, What's the problem? Go ahead and do it. Exaggerate the thing so that the probabilities go a little bit further in your favor that the referee is going to call something in your favor. After all, you're trying to win a game. After all, you're trying to level the playing field with the defenders that get away with doing all these quote unquote minor things, but they're not minor if they gain an advantage. So it's kind of warfare. Yes. The defenders are at war with the offensive player. The offensive player is at war with the defensive player. And then you have the arbiter of truth, which is supposed to be the referee and everybody's pleading their case. You know, they're the referee is the judge. And then <laughs> you have to plead your case <laughs> with the judge to call it. And insofar as yelling at the top of your lungs when you're going down, also keep in mind that, you know, when stadiums were full, it's freaking noisy in there. And if True. the referee's 20 meters away, you kind of want to do that. And if you're the teammates of the guy who just went down, yell as well and make an impression on the referee and put pressure on the referee to make a call. If you are a good little angel with a halo over your head and you're just going to <laughs> Oh, he's the referee. Let's leave it all up to him. You know, you know, he's going to get it right every time or has, or if he doesn't get it right, it's okay. You know, and and be this naive, innocent little puppy. Well, then 
man, I just think you're taking something away from the game, it, part of the spectacle. You're taking part of the spectacle away from the game, and frankly, you are naive. Do your part to gain an advantage, because certainly the opponent is going to do their part to gain an advantage as well. You really have to. And so, but but then there's the point of, okay, what if the referee doesn't buy it? Your Hollywood acting wasn't good enough, and and you get cracked again the next time. So there's it, there's the fine balance of not overselling it and making it a massive spectacle. Um, but at the same time, you have to plead your case. Like you said, I, I like that example, right? We're all trying to, to impress the juror and, and, and prove to him that we're, we're right in his eyes. But it's tough because those players, right, you get cracked one time and it, it doesn't get called. The next time you get cracked again, it doesn't get called then you're you're starting to think as the game progresses right maybe i should just try and stay up this guy's not calling anything so you it's it's almost like every game you kind of have to read the referee and i'd be interested into to to learning about how much that goes into the minds of the players and and the coach right oh we have we have john oliver today or or somebody right um maybe we can be a little bit more we don't have to sell it as much um so yeah no that's that's interesting interesting point let me add let me add some more here. Um, there are other elements to consider and things that bother me. One is the topic of Messi, because somebody might come to me and say, Well, Gary, look at your boy, you know, the greatest of all time. Messi. <laughs> he doesn't die, he doesn't embellish, he doesn't exaggerate. Well, first off, that's not entirely true. If there are times when he does go down or or complain to the referee. He does have a temper, okay, but uh, Yes. Let me, let me let me let me concede the point that he's not like Neymar, not like these other guys. But I think we need to understand that Messi, even though a defender is deploying dark arts against him, and a little nudge here, a little tap there, a little clip here, a little clip there, that that would impede any other player in the world's progress. Messi is just so good that even when the defender does that, Messi still retains an advantage over him. He's that good, you know? Yeah, honestly. So it's actually bad for Messi to go down and embellish and try to get a call. It's actually better a better decision for Messi to stay on his feet and keep going because he's still going to win the duel and he's still going to go off and be one-on-one with the keeper or whatever. Yeah. So th- this is the exception to the rule, is that even though you're doing this to Messi, he's still going to beat you. But if you do it to other players, it's already enough where they're not going to beat you and the defender has gained an advantage. So that is, in my strong opinion, why Messi does not go down and embellish and and feign and all that sort of jazz. Um, I almost, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, no. If you want to make a comment on Messi, go ahead because I was going to transition to another one. No, I was going to say, Argentinian, I, I want to bet that he played a fair amount of street soccer in his time as a, as a young pup. Uh, and I wonder how much of that goes into the minds of, of some of the top players. Cause for me, I, I know when I'm playing, when you get fouled and you score after it's like a confidence boost, right? It's, it's, it's an and one, it's the end one of, of football. And so I, I almost appreciate when players can do that more, you can write off the challenge and still accomplish something. You might get in the box, you might get fouled. So um, no, yeah. When you're talking about Messi, I, I wonder if that's in his mind more. Like you said, if I get past this challenge, I'm going to be in the box. I'm going to score a goal. So foul me if you want. I might get the foul. I might get a goal. But it's because of his ability, Nick. It's not. Yeah, it, exactly. I understand you're bringing up the topic of culture, which I'm going to discuss in a moment as well. But that's messy. If you look at the other players, other Argentine players throughout history, they go down. They scream, they roll around, they embellish, they try to get the foul calls, they try to get the yellow card and the red card to the opponent. So it's not that he's Argentinian and played all this street soccer and the and one sort of culture. It's that it's messy and he still has the advantage and he's still going to cause damage to the opponent. And if he goes down, it's worse for him and his team if he gets a foul call. It's better that he stays up. Um, But on the matter of culture, that's a good point. South Americans in general are perhaps are perhaps the number one perpetrators of 
simulation, diving, yeah, embellishment, yeah. exaggeration, uh, trying to get any sort of micro advantage over the opponent in this regard. And so you see, there's a cultural element to this. And in my opinion, again, remember this is not physics or math. In South America, there is just so much soccer being played in the streets, in the barrio, mm-hmm. uh, not on pristine fields, not with referees. Yeah. It's just straight up 5v5, 4v3, if there's uneven players, uh, 30-year-olds playing with 12-year-olds, 15-year-olds playing with 7-year-olds, all that stuff in dirt, in gravel, in the concrete, uh, sometimes on grass, sometimes on turf, just yeah. all everywhere. And this street ball has, you know, street rules, uh, laws of the jungle sort That's of right. thing. And so that is their upbringing where the players regulate themselves. The players are the ones calling the fouls or not calling the fouls. And there are disputes among the players whether somebody's going to get a foul or not get a foul call. And sometimes it could get physical. Um, and sometimes it could be quite verbal, verbose. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so this is how you're brought up. And so when you're a pro now, that is what's ingrained in your DNA and you take it to the pro game because you have learned that growing up, the players and the teams that uh, deploy these sorts of tactics usually have an advantage, the one who can deploy it best. Sure, sure. Um, Versus, let us say, in the United States, and if I may be so bold to say the United Kingdom or England, um, everything that I just described from a cultural perspective in South America isn't really there. It's mostly all uh, pristine, nice fields, relatively speaking, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, There are parents supervising. There's referees. (laughs) You're paying the referees. Um, There's all this sort of suburban sort of... um, tinge to the game and the culture here is like oh these are the rules of the game the laws of the game follow the rules of the game um the judge the arbiter of the truth is the referee or the referees um leave it in their hands it's bad sportsmanship or it's bad uh, it's a bad look if you're doing this other sort of stuff and trying to bend the rules you know to gain any sort of advantage and so this is how this culture has been raised or, or bred. And then that's why we have a conflict of opinions regarding simulation, diving, all that, or and even VAR. It's this suburban law-abiding citizen, pristine, naive uh, culture saying, oh my God, I cannot believe Neymar. Look at him diving and rolling around on the ground. That's disgraceful, they say. It's a disgrace. Yeah. You are a disgrace. Follow the rules, you know, quit whining and being a little bitch. No, he's not whining and being a little bitch. He's trying to gain advantage to fuck you, okay? He's being and, smart. <laughs> and rightly so, okay? He's a street baller. Um, so there's that cultural element, Nick. And it's interesting to think about that from different cultures and different upbringings and, and how the rules are different um, based on where you're from, but also makes me think about the definition of a tackle and, and what that means to a person from England and what that means to a person from Brazil and how they see what's what's a crunching tackle for, for one country could be different than the Chilean version of a tackle. So does that trickle down to the street? I don't know, maybe. Um, but that might be part of their culture, um, like you were saying. And so, you know, I think it's my opinion, but I, I think here in America, our version of tackling and, and what's a foul is very soft. And you go and play in Europe and you play in South America and you just see the physical difference that we, we don't understand. You know, a lot of clubs here don't get that experience to play um, abroad. So I just, I think our definition of, of diving and exaggerating is, is skewed because we don't have that culture like they do. We don't have the same perception of what's a crunching tackle. Um, you know, I, I, I think we're a little soft here in America. <laughs> I don't know about you. 
Well, I, I don't know. I'm going to push back a little bit. That might be the case maybe in the youth game. I, I'm, I'm trying to understand where you're coming from, Nick. Yeah. It might be the case in the youth game where, forgive me, you have helicopter parents. Uh, we want We want to protect the children so much. So any sort of rough and tussle on the field and people are already outraged about exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, versus overseas, South America in particular. Uh, I don't know if you've seen these Uruguayan little kid leagues where they kick the shit out of each other. Um, it's crazy. It's crazy. So, so I understand your point that we're soft, but then, and here's where I, I'm going to push back. Yeah. At the pro level here or, and in England, for instance, they want to see people getting stuck in and going hard and, and doing all this hard nose sort of stuff for sure. the spectacle's sake versus maybe like in Spain, Spain is a very technical sort of professional league mm -hmm. and they want to protect, I don't know, the beauty of the game, if you will. And they don't see as much beauty in the bone crunching tackle and the hard nose defending. They see more of the beauty in the game in the technique uh, of, of the teams in possession. So when you say we're soft here versus over there, it kind of gets inverted at the pro level. And so what ends up happening then is when you have a highly technical foreign players playing against the United States, say the national team, well, the, the Americans go in, try to get stuck in historically, stuck in bone crunching tackles because that's what we value. And then when the technical players, whether they be Brazilians, Argentinians, Spaniards, whatever, um, have an American up their ass and doing this sort of thing, they go down and simulate, you know, or exaggerate or whatever, because, hey, I'm not going to let these Americans just disrupt our football this way by being, quote unquote, physical. So we're going to go down. And it again, so it's inverted. Yes, we would yeah. say that they are soft. And we are hard, you know, because when it's done to us, the prototypical American player doesn't go down and exaggerate or simulate. They try to stay on their feet and battle yeah, through. Yeah. We are blue collar miners, you know, in the coal mines trying to trying to <laughs> eke out a result. So that's my perspective. I would agree with you at the youth level, soft, soft as shit. But at the pro level, it gets kind of inverted. And we want to be our guys to be hard and hard nosed and stuck in. And we want to see our league. And we take pride in saying that our league, this MLS, right, is, oh, it's really physical here. It's like we, we puff out our chest by being able to say or wanting to say we're physical. And yeah, everybody yeah. else overseas is soft. I'm trying to be like American football, just crunch mm -hmm. every single play. <laughs> no, interesting. Um, what do you what do you think about our our domestic league? Um, I know you say that people think it's physical. Do you think it's physical or do you think that there's players that are, are exaggerating a lot for the wrong reasons? I've never liked this narrative of saying MLS is physical. We're physical yeah. over here and they're not physical over there. What are you fucking talking about? It's physical everywhere across the world. If yeah. you would see the demands that are placed in Europe and in South America on the physical component of the game. And I'm talking about physical fitness. I'm talking about yeah, yeah. endurance, stamina, all of that. It's physical everywhere. Sure. Um, so, that, so the notion that we're more physical than them is idiotic. Uh, secondly, a lot of people here who are fans of the league want to hang their hat on that as a differentiator because they can't tell us the story that where this league is great from a technical perspective or a tactical perspective. Yeah. So they can't differentiate themselves that way. They have to differentiate themselves the other way, which is the physical component. Yeah. I don't know what else to say about it. Um, no, that's, uh, I want to go back to VAR a little bit. Um, cause I don't think we've really talked about how it's changed the game or, or what it's done to, to refereeing. Um, but what do you think just, general opening or general thoughts about introducing VAR. Of course, the most effective thing that it has use for is goal line technology. No, I mean, there's no disputing that. Um, but I feel like it's, one, it slowed the game down for sure. Um, but two, it's just gives, gives the power to the referees in a weird way. But after the game, there's still debates, you know, whether or not 
people are wrong with VAR. So has it really been effective or, or has it only been effective when it wants to be? I, I'm, so, I'm just confused as to like why, why some things are being called and looked at and others. Is it, is it human error or is there something deeper going on? I don't know. Yeah, the human error is always going to be there because you're still subject to interpretation in many of these sorts of things. In particular, what is a foul versus what is not a foul. Yeah, I think it has greatly reduced the incorrect calls of the past with respect to whether something is a goal or not a goal. Yeah, whether it crosses the line or not, and it also has done that with respect to, in particular, offside. Right. So sometimes a goal is scored, but the player was offside, and they usually get that right, or vice versa, which fine. Some people might look at that as a more pure form of the game because justice is being correctly served, uh, more generally speaking. Yeah. However, what they don't consider, and they don't even want to consider it, and I think it is a real thing, and not just for me, but so many people across the globe, especially with differing cultures, it does take something away from the magic of the game. So making the errors on calls, and it turns out to be a goal when it shouldn't have been a goal or things of that nature, there was some magic there in the sense that one team got done wrong. There was injustice, but it connects with us as humans because we know the world isn't always just. Um, And so from a spectator's point of view, again, for particular cultures and viewpoints, that was part of the game. That was part of the beauty of the game. That was part of the the controversy surrounding the game. That was part of a way for us to relate the game to real life, you know, and your struggles and your job and your struggles uh, outside of football. So there was that deeper connection between the sport and outside of the sport. And when you take that away and you make it so cut and dry, so black and white, uh, you've stripped emotion out. Just like when a goal is scored, Nick, and then, oh, video assistant referee is reviewing the play. And then everybody has to like wait a minute or a minute and a half or whatever, two minutes to to see what the final decision is. You've taken away something from the game because when somebody scores a goal, and maybe it's your team, and I'm just talking about the players, but also the fans and the spectators, mm-hmm. you celebrate like crazy, right? But now within the era of VAR, you kind of like don't celebrate at the same intensity. You're kind of like, oh, I, oh man, I don't know if I'm going to call that back. And, and you've taken away some of that intensity, magic, emotion, and joy from it. And vice versa. If you just got scored on, um, I mean – you're happy that things are going to VAR and, and you hope it gets overturned, but you've still taken away some magic from the game. That's an interesting point. I don't think many people have said that. It's, it's, it seems like it's pretty black and white. People think it, there's it's good or it's bad, but I, I, I agree with you. I think that there's definitely something that is leaving the game and and there's songs about the referee fans make songs about the referees you know so it's part of the culture uh and and human error is part of life so it translates to the game in in a big way and i think it's definitely i don't know i'm not a big fan of it i see the the purpose of it i i appreciate the goal line technology and the offsides but it's just so iffy when something happens that's clear and and obvious and they don't go to VAR and then five minutes later the same thing happens and they do go to VAR and then after the game there's there's conversations about VAR and instead of talking about the game and and taking ownership of the play and why did the play lead up to a shot instead of that we're we're talking about the VAR decision so that that frustrates me it just kind of kills it for me um, but I don't know. What's also, it's, it's, what's also very frustrating and I don't like about the American soccer culture, the mainstream American soccer culture, is that so much of the conversation around any particular game centers around the referee and the referee's yeah. calls and stuff. True. And I'm like, what, why, why, what are you guys talking about? Why are you like, <laughs> why is, 
why is half the discussion about the referee and this call or that call or that yellow card that are you just incapable of talking about the game itself the the tactical schema that was deployed and maybe adjusted midway through the game or later in the game by either team uh or whether you know the tactical schema was completely surprising because this particular coach over the past 15 games you would deploy x y and z instead or talking about specific plays that were that were made or missed by the center backs in the game or the winger in the game or the striker in the game everything is just so superficial instead it's like here are the stats you know this is (laughs) for here are the possession numbers uh here are the turnovers here's this Ooh, XG or XA or whatever <laughs> idiotic statistic uh, they they want to start sound smart by, and then the other half of it is infusion of the referee comments. I'm like, what? It's Why the easy you- cop out. It's an easy cop out to blame the ref. It's harder to talk tactics and say this guy did this and this guy moved here. But I don't think that. A lot of people are ready for that kind of comprehension, Gary, but they need to be. They have to be, right? And otherwise, we're, we're not going to make it as a, as a top-class culture here stateside. Um, the dark arts, I, I love that uh, term. I think I've heard you say that before. What re- Do you think that South America is the best employer of the dark arts? Who's, who do you think has the best strategy? And it's a bummer because... Some of the dark arts are, are getting kicked out of the game with VAR, right? Things are getting caught that didn't used to get caught. And I love that. You know, I've, I've heard some funny stories, even from Daniel's team. I remember they played like the, the Royal British Navy or something when they were 16. And these guys were, were deploying some some interesting tactics that I will not repeat on, uh, on this podcast. But uh, some of those are getting erased from the game with VAR. So I want to think about who, in your opinion, is the, the best employer of the dark arts do you have a favorite region or player or Uh, or team even i really don't know because there's only only so many hours in the day and so only so many games one can watch uh throughout the globe with the different countries and cultures and clubs and national teams so but generally speaking i would say the south americans are are sons of bitches when it comes to this um (laughs) i i just think I just think it's a cultural thing where down there, um, the struggle to survive everyday life because the, just the, I don't know, the standard of living, it's just, it's just rough down there. Yeah. And, and if you, if you just go through the motions to try to make a quote unquote honest living and always follow the rules to the letter. In just everyday life, right? Your job, your employment situation, family life, uh, business, real estate, you name it. Then it's hard to move up the socioeconomic hierarchy. You're just forever pigeonholed in in like poverty level or barely making ends meet and things of that nature. So families and people in general are always trying to look for an angle. They're always trying to look how can we circumvent the system? How can we bend the rules a bit? And some people obviously go more extreme and straight up break the rules and break the law. Um, But it's it's for survival. It's not that they're bad human beings. They are just kind of forced in, in this direction and they feel a far greater incentive and pressure to break the law or bend the law or find angles than we hear Americans feel we don't feel that as much so it's kind of hard i think in general for us here to relate to those circumstances and then broad scale broad brush judgments are levied against the south americans for being bad human beings you know and yeah yeah don't you know don't break the law or don't follow the rules and things of that nature and it it, i think it just lacks empathy It, it you know, nobody, they haven't traveled down there. They haven't walked in their shoes, so they don't see it. And then, you know, when you have a Luis Suarez who 
bites uh, the Italian defender whose name escapes me at the moment. I think it was Chiellini. I just don't recall. Um, exactly. You're right. Yeah, you're right. Um, or when Suarez on the goal line uh, saves, uh, I think it was against South Africa. was uh, South Africa, I think. So saves it with his hands, you yep. know, at, at the dying moments of the World Cup game. And then, you know, he does it intentionally, obviously, like a goalkeeper, you know, he saves no, the, yeah. the goal cut going in. They call him a disgrace, a piece of shit of a human being and and things like that. And they just don't understand the deeper um, the deeper reasonings uh, uh, of the human, the, the deeper rationale that exists. And so to answer your question, yeah, I think the South Americans are, are probably number one in the dark arts. Uh, Europe, not so much because... First world countries, people are in general are, are much better off. Yeah. Um, and it kind of seeps into every facet of life, soccer included. The United States, we're well off, especially here. I mean, soccer has been built for the suburban, affluent, upper middle class culture. So, so many of our professional players uh, are, ch are chosen from that demographic. So they've been raised, oh, do good in school, get A's, B's, and C's, maybe go to college, get a degree in college, follow all the rules of society, all that sort of stuff. And so you have these pristine rule-abiding citizens that end up being uh, professional players here in the States. And again, we can't relate to what's done in South America. Now, somebody might listen to this and say, well, okay, well, Gary, Africa is a disaster. You know, why are the Africans not... Uh, deploying as many dark arts or things of that nature. And in general, I, I think I would agree that the South Americans are, are worse, you know, that the, than the Africans, the Africans um, are uh, more rule following and don't deploy as much of the dark arts. Mm -hmm. um, but again, I'm not African. I haven't been to the continent. I, I don't, claim to know that culture very well, but it'd be good to, to maybe get a, a guest or speak to somebody from that region and to understand why they are the way they are. Yeah. I'd say from, from what I've just observed in their games and their teams and their players, it's a very respectful region of the world in the way that they play uh, yes. and the way they carry themselves. And that's that's something that I, I think a lot about too. Like when we talk about how the, the rules of the jungle and the street rules and respect is a big part of that. Uh, and yes, some countries have a lot of it. Some countries kind of lose it in the competition. Um, and so that that's a whole nother angle, right? Of some players employ the dark arts, but then instantly are the first ones to help you up. Uh, and show respect where, whereas others are going to tackle you and hey, fuck you, you know, you're just going to be on the ground. So it's, it's interesting to look at it from the perspective of how much respect um, does these players have. But what I want to think about is, do you think that the culture, the cultural differences between American teams and teams like Honduras and, and Ecuador and Nicaragua, is the struggle and the struggle that they have in their culture part of the reason that we struggle so much because we're not coming – most of our players – I don't want to generalize too much, but it seems like you said, most of our players are coming from suburban backgrounds where they're not really challenged in their day-to-day -day life versus these players that are, are coming from Honduras and Nicaragua where there's there's always struggle. Is is that one of the main reasons that we struggle against these opponents? Because we have players. We It's not like we don't have the right players to do it. Um, so I, I, I want to see if there's any correlation between that. What do you think? Yeah, it's an interesting observation, Nick. Uh, I would be inclined to agree with much of that, that the other CONCACAF nations that are not the United States and Canada, mm -hmm. uh, so Mexico and, and Central America, they are in a far worse socioeconomic situation and they are constantly trying to battle to survive. And that's the pool of players from which, you know, the pro clubs and the national teams there extract. And so when it comes to Honduras playing the United States or whatever, um, 
yeah, the United States struggle because the Hondurans are, are going at 100% in every competition to hopefully, put yourself in their shoes, to hopefully um, be scouted by maybe a European team or some some situation where they can get out of Honduras and actually make a great living at football. Because when they start out, they're starting out their pro careers there in Honduras. And basically they're making pennies. Uh, they're not, they're not graduating from their terrible socioeconomic situation. So they have to find out a way to turn soccer into a much bigger thing uh, for themselves. So they have to be at a hundred percent versus our players is like, nah, you know, and you heard, we're recording this after the Honduras United States game. But before that game, a week before we played against Switzerland and a lot of the analysis here by pundits in the United States are like, oh, if you look at the teams, they weren't really going 100%. It was an exhibition, and they're just in cruise control, and the U.S. players are in cruise control. Okay, I agree with, with much of that. It just sucks that that might be the case. And again, it's because they're very wealthy players for the most part in general already. And they come from a different background and they don't have necessarily that competitive fire that even if it were an exhibition match, you're going to go full throttle. But here in CONCACAF, all our opponents are going full throttle and that might be a grand equalizer just as deploying dark arts on their part versus us Mm -hmm. helps to equalize perhaps the disparity that might exist in talent and things of that nature. And that's not to say that Honduras or Costa Rica or Jamaica or Trinidad Tobago don't have talented players. They absolutely do. And in many respects, just as good, if not better than ours, it's just ours since we're coming from the United States, our players have been elevated in profile due to a better platform. And then they've been able to graduate maybe to the European clubs because of that elevation and visibility and marketability. Uh, versus the Hondurans, the Costa Ricans, uh, the Central Americans. They don't have that same luxury. And so what I'm trying to say, Nick, is that just because they may not be in Europe, just because they might not be household names around the world, does not mean that they're inferior players. Their circumstances are just different. They, If they had been born and raised uh, elsewhere, and, and not even that, actually, if you had this player transplanted immediately to Europe, to a Borussia Dortmund or to a Real Sociedad or a Betis or whatever, they would be fine. They would be successful. They would be on the first team. Maybe they wouldn't be a superstar, but they would be full-fledged European players as well. So we need to be a little bit careful to just look at the pedigree of the player and look at where they play. Oh, mm-hmm. this player plays in the Honduran first division. Who cares? He's not as good as us. That's not necessarily true. It's opportunities like we talked about in in one of our last episode. Uh, if you don't get the opportunities, you might not get to a place like Real Betis to really shine. And so it's interesting to think about who's going to have an easier pathway, you know, in the current state of affairs. A 17-year-old kid in the academy in a, in in United States or a 17-year-old in the academy playing in Honduras. They could be the same skill level excuse me, but one might have more opportunities just based on his geographic location. No question. Or the the, the player from Honduras could be vastly superior and that player ends up having a less lucrative or less uh, visible or no pro career whatsoever versus the American, his American counterpart who was vastly inferior in talent level and everything under the sun with the sport. And they have a great professional career. So again, Nick, this goes back to the theme, which we'll have a recording on at some point, if we haven't done it already, about the notion of the cream rising to the top. It's Mm. not true. Let me repeat it. It is not true that the cream rises to the top. There are just so many other factors and elements in play as to who rises to the top and who does not. Talent there is some sort of base level, bare minimum prerequisite in terms of ability, uh, sure. supporting ability. But it does not mean that if 
player A is greater than player B, then then player A is going to have a much greater and more lucrative and higher profile career than player B. Not true. <laughs> We're going to have to dive deep into that one. You know what I'm I'm thinking about, and this just popped into my mind, is now it's the first time that we're going to have a USA team of quote-unquote superstars that are playing in Europe, that are young, they're wealthy, like you said, uh, and they're expected to, to carry the brunt of this USA team. Uh, and I just wonder what that does to the psyche of those players with with that kind of pressure being so young and being expected to to perform at a high level like they do in, in their club in europe and watching the switzerland game it's just like where where was the energy where was where was the excitement to be able to play together if if we're just going to sit back and let switzerland have a hundred passes and go score a goal what are we doing? Let's get some young players in that are going to have a good showing, even if it is a friendly. So I, I'm just, as these tournaments start to roll forward, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how these superstars can take the brunt of that pressure. And, and, and you look at other teams where almost everybody is playing at a higher level. Um, but now we have this team of, you know, half MLS, half European players. I'm just, my brain is starting to think about, you know, what kind of pressure they're going to be dealing with um, as young athletes, young, wealthy athletes that are expected to really perform at a high level. It's going to be interesting. They'll they'll be fine, Nick, um, because and I'm talking specifically about the European based players, because yeah. in Europe, you have pressure every single day, not just every game every single day in training yeah they do not let you get away with half-assing things if you half-ass things you are falling down the pecking order so fast so fast and that can in turn have your career fall off a cliff but so easily so fast yeah. because you are replaceable like this okay because the incentives that clubs have in europe is you have to get the results. You have to perform because of the threat of promotion and relegation that exists and how that, and, and this is not just for the clubs that are under pressure uh, that they might be relegated. No, the pressure of promotion relegation extends throughout the table all the way up to and including the first place and second place teams because the, the third through the fifth place team and the sixth through the 10th place team, they're always pushing themselves to the limit to try to climb the pecking order and mm. if they are doing that then that builds pressure on the real madrids of the world or the bayern munichs of the world or the barcelonas of the world or the man cities of the world such that those league leading super wealthy teams have to also go at a hundred percent maximum uh, effort to maintain their their sure. whole position. Um, so when it comes to our men's national team, our European-based players have been exposed to that now on a daily basis and for many of them for years now. So it's not that big a deal. Now, if it's an MLS player, that's a completely different story. <laughs> um, completely different story. Um, but, you know, the downside to that is that Maybe since these European-based players are successful, are financially secure now, um, if they happen to be eliminated from the World Cup in the group phase or something like that, they could have it in the back of their heads. Oh, well, that sucks. I, like, I wanted us to progress. I wanted us to get very far. But, you know, it's not the end of the world. I'll, I'll go back to my European club. I'm, get, I'm being paid. Yes, yeah, exactly. I'm being paid. I'm being paid half a million or 1.5 million or 3.8 million a year. And it, it, life is fine. You know, soccer's just the game at the end of the day. Um, and that's versus, what I'm worried about. Yeah. Versus other countries and their cultures, Argentina, Brazil, Italy, Spain, like England, those players are, in my opinion, are made different. Um, and sure, maybe I'm not yeah. giving enough credit to our guys, uh, our Polisic, McKinney, Adams, Maybe the reason that they're having success over in Europe, or high, it, maybe it's highly likely, is that 
they are indeed internally driven and have an internal engine and mm. the money and, and the having made and all that stuff be, is a secondary thing. And they are true competitors in the strongest sense of the word, a la Kobe Bryant, a la Michael Jordan, where they are, were super wealthy and successful, but that wasn't enough for them. You know, they yeah. had to win. They had to be the best they can be. So I'm optimistic that many of our players do have that internal fire burning um, to answer your question. But I think there is a little bit of a, a distinction there with respect to what kind of pressure they feel from the United States fan base versus what an Argentine feels from from their fan base. Com those are different worlds. Absolutely. And that's kind of where I wanted to head with this is because you take like you were you were just saying those players are feeling real pressure every day. And then you take a player from that environment where there's no half-assing anything and you come into a USA camp. I'm not at the camp. I don't see what they're doing, but I, I would just go on a whim and say it's probably not as intense yes. as as the, yes. their pro club environment. So yeah. if you take uh, that player out of that environment, I just wonder, are they more relaxed? Is there not as yes. much of a fire burning? You know what yes. I mean? Yes. No. And, and I think that's a valid point, observation or, or presumption. Um, I speak partially from experience through a whole bunch of the stories of not just our players that I've known intimately for many, many years, but from other pro players at that level who confide in me. And yeah, generally speaking, that is the sentiment. It's a, a way more relaxed, way less pressure. Um, at, at the U U.S. national team level, uh, youth and senior uh, versus the club situation. And so it's almost like, and I want to be careful here, okay, but it's almost like they're getting a break from the daily grind when they come be with the national team and play with the national team. No, no, I agree. That's kind of what I felt watching uh, watching the Switzerland game. It's just like, there's no, there's no real excitement here to for us to be here. There's no pride in the jersey. Like this is a, a decent opponent. It's a quality opponent. Let's let's get after it. Let's not just sit back and and let them ping around us. And players but, across the and players across the world. It's not exclusive to the U.S. But players across yeah, the world yeah. are also a little bit cautious, uh, especially when it's not a comp uh, a true competition with the national team. They also don't want to be injured. They don't want to injure themselves and then kind of jeopardize their club situation which is their bread and butter sure um, so it happens uh everywhere i just do agree with you that there seems to be a little bit of a difference you know with with, with our national team and others